Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a great day. So you may hear this a little bit, but as I record this intro, I am fighting a cold. And when I was a pro athlete, Tim and I avoided every germ. We were probably officially germaphobes. We would never touch anything in public with our bare hands, like always pulled our sleeves over our hands to touch anything. (laughs) And we never touched our eyes, noses, or mouths. As you know, germs could get in there. And when you live that way, you become extra aware of every cough around you, especially in the movie theater. Um, I think Tim was calling it rebreathing. You were like, I'm just rebreathing. Everybody's gross breathed in and breathed out air. But it was necessary for us to live that way, or so we thought, since we were racing for a living, because if you got sick, you couldn't win money. So our immune systems were probably very repressed for a decade or more, since we were never exposed to to any germs. When Wilder was born, it all went out the window. Within three months, she was bringing home all the bugs from daycare. We were sick as dogs for probably two years. Now we don't get sick quite as much, but today I'm definitely feeling it. You know, we used to take this thing called GSE, it's grapefruit seed extract, and the concept was when you felt sick, you would take it before you got sick, and it like killed all the bugs. Think about grapefruit seed extract, very maybe acidic, or I don't know. I don't know why it worked, but it seemed to work. But um, now, I don't know, we threw away our bottle of it like two years ago. So I'm hearing people talk about something called umka. I don't know. What do you think? It, does anyone have any recommendations for maybe more natural or herbal remedies to fight off these silly winter colds? Send them my way. Okay. So today we have a very special guest, a friend of mine who is doing great things in the world of social enterprise. Isabel McDevitt started her career working for a nonprofit in New York called the Doe Fund. There, she created actual businesses to help train, employ, and re-enter formerly incarcerated men into the workforce. It was a huge success. She's got staggering stats on how much it lowered the rate of recidivism. So she later got married. She moved to Boulder. I met her. We did some great work with our Running Start program. But now, today, Isabel is the executive director of the Bridge House, and she's doing the same thing she did in New York by creating social enterprises like businesses within her organization, but it's focused on the homeless population in the Boulder area. So she is changing lives in a huge way, and she's incredibly inspirational. All right, let's bring her on. All right, Isabel, All right. you ready? Yeah. All right, you sure? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, okay. cool. Let's do it. Yes. Wait, is this for me? Yeah, that's your water. Okay, good. We hydrate while we're doing the <laughs> podcast episodes. Okay. All right. So um, 
I'm super happy that you came over today. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you for having me. You have been a personal friend of mine for a really long time, and we've known each other in so many ways through business, through athletics. Our husbands are friends. In fact, did Tim coach Ed? He did, yeah. That was like how we actually met, maybe. Yeah, for I think he coached him for about three years okay. in Ironman. Oh, yes. But yes. have you, now, have you done an Ironman? I have not done an Ironman. So let's, uh, let's start with this topic of sports. Because this isn't what you're doing in your life right now, but this is this common theme. And a lot of women will relate to this. It doesn't matter what you're doing when you want to get together with someone. We're trying to squeeze everything into our busy days. It's, hey, what are you doing? You, how long are you running this weekend? You want to go for a hike? You want to get out on bikes? So tell me about your running background or your athletic background. Well, as a kid, I played soccer and then I played lacrosse and tennis. And so sports have always been a big part of my life. I think it's really um, my history in sports is really credited kind of my independence and confidence and team building skills and problem solving skills and being able to work with a cohesive group. But in terms of health and fitness, I really didn't get into running until I moved to Boulder and had kids. And then I really found a lot of solace in being able to get out on the trails and run, especially with little, little babies, because that was the only time I could like physically have my body to myself. So I loved running, you know, in that time period. And then um, when I went back to work full time, I have to admit running has taken a back seat. But trying to balance that with um, a full-time career is something that's important because you know every time I'm out there, that's when I have a clear head and can think and can be myself. Well, I lo- and I, of course, totally relate to the whole clear head while you're out running or training or doing whatever. That's like the first, I think it's like a 20 minute rule for me. The first 20 minutes, your head is full of junk and you're just slowly shedding it until all of a sudden there's a moment where you're like, I'm not thinking about anything. And then the good stuff comes, you know, the yeah. good ideas and the, um, okay. So you're busy, you're juggling stuff. You've got two kids. I do. Sophie is 11 and Charlton is nine. So these kids are growing up, um, in a household of successful parents. Um, your husband is in the financial world, but what you do for a living is really special. Not that what he does isn't, but what you do is really special. And I want to dig into this. Tell us a little bit about your career track, actually. Yeah. Well, so what I do now is I run a nonprofit here in Boulder called Bridge House that provides opportunities for homeless adults to transition back to independence. But my history of how I got here really began when I was a kid. I just wanted to help people. And my parents were really great because instead of having a summer job, you know, babysitting or at an ice cream shop, they would actually encourage me to volunteer full time and they would pay me to do that as my summer job. So I got into volunteerism as a very young kid working, you know, with kids with HIV and AIDS, working with kids with cerebral palsy, you know, doing working at a uh, a group uh, where they, there was a recycling program for adults with disabilities. Um, and so very early on, I, I got to experience, you know, 
what it's like to work with populations with needs and also really what it was like to work in the nonprofit sector. So wait, you were in high school or how old were you when your parents... So I recall you telling the story actually in the test talk that you did at Skirt Mm -hmm. Sports and I think you said your parents, it was... It was a value they wanted to instill in you was this idea of how important volunteering is mm-hmm. and giving back. Right. And so they essentially sort of paid for you to volunteer because you couldn't then get a summer job and volunteer. Right. So I was working, you know, 40 hours a week. Right. And yeah, I mean, technically it wasn't really volunteering because I was being paid by my parents, but it was a it was a value of, hey, you know, let's give back to the community, but also a value to me that I, you know, because I was doing that, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, work in a regular paid job. So I was also, you know, being taught financial management skills and things like that by my parents. I love that. I love it. In fact, I think if anybody has the resources to supplement their kid Mm -hmm. for a while and offer that same kind of agreement, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to do that with Wilder. Mm -hmm. I think it's amazing. Yeah. So of those different kinds of jobs and organizations where you volunteered as a kid, which one stood out the most? You know, I think what I what I learned the most in every opportunity was just that people are people. And I really developed a skill at an early age where it didn't matter whether it was someone with a brain injury or a two-year-old with HIV. It would I was relating to people in a very real way. And my role was typically to enhance what the staff and the program was doing. So in one one summer, I worked with a group of kids with cerebral palsy, and every every day we'd go on a field trip, whether it was to the grocery store or to the museum, and I was kind of their chaperone. And whenever there was an activity that maybe they couldn't do, I was always the volunteer. So one day we were at the power plant in Maine, and there was a bike where you had to ride the bike to light up the light bulb to show oh, how much cool. energy it took. Yeah. And so all these kids, you know, they were in wheelchairs and stuff. So so I had to ride the bike. And I will never forget, I mean, they were just cheering me on. And I was kind of the extension of them because I'm healthy and had a, a body that mm-hmm. could work. But it was meaningful because I was helping them experience, you know, something that a regular school field trip would have done and all the kids would have gotten to ride the bike. So... Um, that was really big for me. And I, I just feel like I, I learned early on that not to be scared of people who are different and also not to be, um, condescending when trying to help people really trying to be genuine and, um, offer support and encouragement, but not look at people as, you know, or by pitying, pitying them or, um, thinking of them as, super different. Um, and that's really informed my full career. You know, now that I work daily with people experiencing homelessness, I don't, I don't treat them any different than my friends and family and, and other folks who maybe aren't experiencing the hard times that they are. And I think that that's a really important ingredient to work in this field. Oh, it, I can only imagine. And the, just this phrase came to mind that everyone has a story. I mean, we have to remember that. Yesterday, I was at the post office and the guy behind the counter yelled at me because I was there trying to take some extra boxes. And and I just thought, I wonder what kind of day he's having. You know, it's okay. I'm not, you know, going to get myself ruffled because he was, you know, tough with me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Obviously, on edge. Everyone's got a story. Down Absolutely. to the little details. 
Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, okay, so you work in the field of homelessness, right? Correct. Yep. So let's talk about it. It's a very polarizing topic. You know? Absolutely. When I think of homelessness, and most people do, they're going to immediately think of the guy in the street corner with the sign mm-hmm. who makes you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. because he's asking for money. And in your head, you're like, oh, yeah, what's he going to use that money for? Right? Right. That is the kind of visual people have. Tell me the real mm-hmm. story about homelessness. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of judgment and fear when people think about homelessness and anger. You know, mm-hmm. this concept of, you know, why are these people homeless? What are, you know, what's the, what did they do to end up on the street corner? And why are they, you know, asking me for something? Why are they putting that in my face? I mean, that that is very, very common frustration of folks in the community. But when you take a step back, you really look at homelessness. It's it's a circumstance, first of all. So people who are homeless are experiencing being without a home. The diversity of the homeless community is tremendous. Um, Homelessness is a symptom of so many other things going on in our society. The amount of people that we see who are homeless due to a family breakup, a divorce, a death of a spouse, where things were going fine, someone got sick, medical bills piled up, and next thing you know, you can't pay your mortgage. It can happen to anybody. We also see people um, who are victims of domestic violence. We see people who have been able to make ends meet as wages haven't kept pace with housing costs. Mm -hmm. We see people who um, have, you know, certainly have challenges around mental health and addiction. And we live in a country and and sadly in a state where Colorado is 49th in terms of spending on mental health and addiction services. Oh, wow. So, you know, who's 50? <laughs> um, Second to yeah, last is yeah. not a good honor. Yeah, I mean, if mm. you if if you do not have financial resources and you need to get mm. clean and sober mm. and you need to go to a long term treatment, it is nearly impossible. Some of the the most bare bone treatment facilities are twenty thousand dollars a month, not covered by insurance. So you know we have, and we all understand how um, how deadly drugs and alcohol can be. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really, really challenging when you look at the homeless community per se, and we see about 3,000 unique people each year, and we keep really good wow. data. Mm-hmm. And we can say with certainty that you know over 50% of people are experiencing mental illness. 26% of people have a brain injury. Um, about 48% of people are self-reporting a history of substance abuse. It's probably a lot higher. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of the symptoms of a failed medical system of challenging, you know, economic times for people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, and it all manifests itself in the, this status of being without a home. Um, so it really it really is part of my my job and my mission to try to educate people just on how homelessness is is not you can't look at it as a standalone issue it relates to our issues around um you know our economy our um, mental and medical care system and also our our culture 
in America, you know, we're a culture of individuals. Everyone's trying to make it. And in other Mm -hmm. societies, you know, you take care of crazy Uncle Joe and he lives with you. Um, you You know, generations live together. And in our culture, that's not really the case. So we have a lot to do to kind of break apart this issue so that people can understand, you know, how if we can work on some of the upstream factors, you know, right. like education and working with people with trauma and people re-entering from incarceration, people returning mm-hmm. from um, the military, you know, if we can if we can work to prevent homelessness or address some of the issues that can can contribute to someone's homelessness and experiencing homelessness, um, then we can do a much better job as a community. Well, so there's prevention. Okay, so first of all, it it kind of seems to me like this uh, un- imbalanced uh, teeter-totter. You can slide down into homeless homelessness really fast, but how easy is it to get out again? And so there's prevention, like let's let's change some of the uh, system, you know, the things that are in place so people don't become homeless. But when they do become homeless, what do organizations generally do and how mm-hmm. do they treat them and do yeah. they give them the tools to get out? Yeah. So that's sort of the ongoing debate in the, mm. in, you know, the field, if you will, which, and even in here in Boulder, there is the practical reality that we don't want people to freeze or starve. So, emergency shelter, um, access to meals, a safe place to be is important. It's important, you know, to make sure that that in a community like ours, in a country like ours, you know, people don't have to freeze on our streets. However, a lot of times we get caught up in that crisis mode and all we can do is help people make it to the next day. When truly, if we want to make a dent in ending homelessness, which I personally believe we can do on an mm-hmm. individual level, um, one person at a time, you have to look at two things. The practical reality of supporting someone as they transition out of homelessness. Someone can't get a foothold if they're in a lottery system for shelter every night and you have to pack up each morning with your backpack, walk around town and just hope you're gonna get a bed that night. So we need to move beyond a lottery-based emergency shelter system. So like routine, this is just something people can relate to in general. When you're losing it a little bit, you're losing your grip or you're you're losing your focus in your life, is routine something that helps people get back on track? Absolutely. So what we need is we need interventions where we can say to people, hey, live here for six months while you get mental health treatment, while you get access to employment. You know, really look at, stabilizing people. Um, Maslow's hierarchy is something that we talk a lot about in the field where it's like, if you're in survival mode, like I need to just stay alive. Well, how can you possibly think about, you know, dealing with your addiction or getting mental health care or getting a job? I mean, if you have absolutely no place where you're going to sleep or where you're going to put your stuff, Mm -hmm. of course you can't get a job. So what we've tried to do at Bridge House is try to change the conversation of, yes, we need emergency services, but let's focus on these transitional opportunities to help people stabilize. And one of our programs called Ready to Work does just that. We provide a year's worth of housing coupled with support services and a job. So we actually employ people in social enterprise. We have a landscaping business and then a 
catering business called Community Table Kitchen, where we actually employ people, provide them a place to live, and support services so that they can get a foothold and get a routine and start to earn money and save money and have a safe place to live with the goal of then being able to transition on their own out of homelessness after a year. Um, That's one model. It's not the only solution, but we need to be looking at similar interventions for people so that, you know, they can take care of what they need to take care of and be successful. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit. We're going to get back to Bridge House too and ready mm-hmm. to work and this cool stuff you're doing with Community Table Kitchen. I want to talk about something I think a lot of people often wonder when you do see homeless people on the street. And we now know everyone has a story, but they seem sometimes threatening or you're like you said there's anger or fear mm-hmm. or whatever. What do you recommend to people? How do they re, how should you respond to someone who comes up to you and asks for money? You know, again, it's it is really a personal decision. I mean, there's some people I know who say, "Yep, I give 20 bucks because who am I to judge? Who am mm. I to judge whether this guy's going to go spend it on alcohol? Who knows? You know, who knows what he's going to do? I just give him 20 bucks." And then there's other people who feel very uncomfortable and I know people who drive around with a box of granola bars or people who, um, you know, will roll down their window and and say, hey, have you heard about Bridge House or, you know, who, who have that personal interaction? And then I know people who are uncomfortable and that's OK, too. I think it really is a personal choice. My what I do is I tell people about services and I look people in the eye. The hardest thing about being homeless from what I can gather, is that folks really feel invisible. They feel completely beaten down by their own circumstance. And then to add insult to injury, if you will, when community members just look past them or can't, you know, can't look at them in the face, that just makes it feel that much worse. So treating someone like a person is really, I think, the bare minimum of what we all should do. Looking people in the eye is something we need to do more. Isabel and I are really looking each other in the eye right now. It's pretty awesome. Um, So I think that is such a good point because it is about validating. You're real. You're important. You matter. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I find frequently is when I'm meeting with someone who is you know, works in the business community or is a potential donor or, you know, a friend at a at a dinner party. It is unbelievable to me once, you know, we have a conversation about what I do, how many people say, you know, my brother's homeless or, you know, my uncle was homeless or my sister is in drug treatment. I mean, we are all touched by this um, in, in different ways. And if we can look beyond, hey, that guy on the street is, you know, seems seems a little scary and think, oh, that could be my brother or my uncle. I mean, we all have a connection. Um, I think we would do a lot better in terms of accepting that we need to um, be very collaborative as a community to address these issues of homelessness. Well, that's a that's a really good point. And, you know, I want to kind of dig into how you got to the bridge house because the work you did in New York 
in your early mm-hmm. earlier part of your career, mm-hmm. pre-babies, right? Mm-hmm. That was really formative. So tell, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about the Doe Fund. Yeah. So, you know, as I said, in high school, I every summer my, my job, in quotes, was to volunteer full-time for a local agency. Wait, are you going to have your kids do this? I don't know. My kids actually, <laughs> I don't know if I want to say this on the podcast, but my kids actually have a really interesting relationship with service because they um, they do a lot of it and they love it when they're doing it, but sometimes it feels too much like mommy's work mm. that um, it's it, it's maybe not as as ingrained in them as, as I would like, but I think it might change as they get older. Oh, they, well, yeah, I yeah. guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, so I went to, you know, so when I went to college, I continued to do a lot of volunteering and then I moved to, um, New York city right out of school. Um, and I became involved with an organization called the Doe fund. And I've got to tell you, it changed my life. I was for the first time in my life, you know, put in a situation where, I worked at a 200-bed facility in Harlem, a homeless shelter for men transitioning back into the workforce. So I was probably one of three or four um, Caucasian people on the staff. Were they transitioning from prison? Well, they were all homeless, but many of them were homeless due to being in prison. Okay. and the majority of the the population was African American. I was, like I said, one of only about four white staff members. Um, I was 22, and you know, one of the only women. And I literally was put in a situation where I was delivering direct services. So my job was to help people get jobs once they got to the end of the program. So they were working in this employment program and then I had to help them, you know, go apply for a job at, um, you know, for a janitorial company or um, I worked with FedEx. It was, you know, I I really was that kind of liaison. But I just had this incredible experience where I felt more at home in that homeless shelter. I felt more respected. I felt more empowered by working with these individuals who treated me with the utmost of respect. And again, that foundation of just learning how to treat people like people was so important to me. And and I created these amazing relationships with people in the program. And also at the Doe Fund, the, the culture is that um, many of the people in leadership roles have graduated uh. from the program. So mm-hmm. my mentor, this guy, Al Johnson, like he had been homeless in New York City, a heroin addict for years and years and years. And now he was running this amazing program and we became good friends. And, you know, just he he opened my eyes to, you know, a lot, a lot of um, what it was like to be in that situation, but then also really how when someone has been in that situation, they can empower others to, um, you know, accept an opportunity and really change their lives. And so I, I developed this kind of passion by being exposed to these incredible people who had been through in- incredibly difficult times. And I, you know, the lily white girl from Maine, <laughs> <laughs> had never experienced that personally, but, but because they were so accepting of me, I was able to learn so much. And so that's stayed with me, you know, throughout my career. 
Okay, so at the Dauphin, I mean, I'm just, that sounds like such a, almost a magical experience. Mm-hmm. And most people would probably not gravitate to a job like that. And there's something in you that did. Yeah. What? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. I, I, I don't know whether I just got lucky mm. to have found myself there. And it triggered something in me that, you know, this belief in opportunity, this belief of the power of the individual to, you know, change their situation, you know, come out of the worst trauma, the worst, you know, the worst uh, childhood situation, you know, make mistakes, struggle with addiction, and then be able to completely transform themselves and give back to the community and their families and so forth. Like I got to witness that over and over and over again. And so I feel like I was more lucky to find myself there. It wasn't something in me that put myself there, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. And I think there's so many messages here about the fact that you can change your situation and every day you can move forward to take steps to be a new person. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it, where I work is it's a very extreme. You know, someone's living on the street. Someone, you know, <laughs> yeah. is struggling with addiction. So it's very extreme. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this person needs to change their situation. But it life is relative. So, you know, if I use myself for an example, there's times where I'm like, oh, you know, I really should motivate to get run more. Well, you know what? I can change my situation. And and, you know, yes, I think everyone has something that they wish they were doing more of. Um, and it's just very, very, um, it's just very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, it's just very obvious with the case of homelessness. But we all have things that we could be doing better and we want to be doing better. Mm-hmm. And we have the power to do whatever we want to do. I know. And I think that's such an enlightening thought. People feel stuck all the time Mm -hmm. they feel stuck in marriages in jobs whatever it is you have a bunch of kids and suddenly you feel stuck well you wanted those kids (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you know there and and yet is it changing your your situation or changing how you think about your situation that makes you happy yeah and you know and i go back to that conversation about sports i mean the most important thing is to have confidence in yourself that you can, that you are in charge and you are not a victim of everything going on around you. And, you know, when, as a parent, I look at raising children and, you know, putting them in situations and activities and team sports and things like that, you know, it's, it is about trying to cultivate that, you know, cultivate that sense of empowerment. Like I can do this. I can, I can be effective in my own situation. Um, and I, and I, sadly, I don't think a lot of people feel that way. And I don't know whether that's human nature or whether that's just sort of how, you know, the state of affairs right now with our own society, Mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you who does believe that they're in charge of themselves. The five-year-old crowd. Because every day Wilder looks at me and goes, I'm in charge of me, not you. You can't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. But it makes me think about the fact that you can control yourself. You can even change the way you think about the situation you're in. You can flick some switches. Mm -hmm. You know, there are things you can do there. But you can't control other people. 
And uh, the, the world that you live in has to be fraught with both incredible success stories, but also times when people go mm-hmm. back off the wagon and you, mm-hmm. Isabel, have to accept that. So mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you handle the good and the bad that come with the work that you do? Well, so there's a saying kind of in social work and in homeless services that case managers use, which is you can't work harder than your client. And, you know, I don't love that phrase, but I I do think that that is true. However, my take on how I deliver the programs that I deliver is everything is opportunity based. I am going to lay out as many opportunities that I can put forward. So whether that's a job, whether that's an opportunity to save money, whether that's um, you know using my own networks to hook someone up with um, a program like Running Start, or um, you know someone who's an accountant who can help someone with a, a difficult tax situation. You know, I am going to lay out opportunities for my clients as many as I can, but they have to accept them. And my experience has been, is when you lead with opportunity, people will rise to the occasion. When I started Ready to Work in Boulder, people thought it was crazy. You're gonna create businesses just to employ homeless people? Well, those businesses will fail. How can they be good businesses? You know. Well, we've proven them wrong. We have a catering business that competes with the best caterers in Boulder. And we put, you know, homeless folks who literally have maybe been living on the streets a couple weeks ago, working in some of the most prestigious businesses, you know, for a catering event. And we trust them to do a good job. And you know what? They do because they're accepting an opportunity. And so when you put opportunities in front of people, and you don't patronize them, you don't condescend to them, you just say, hey, can you can you do this job? And and I need you to do this job. Like, I believe that you can do this job and, and we're gonna do it together. It is a completely different experience than, oh, here, here I'm gonna sign you up for this, like, this program benefit that you're gonna have to fill out 50 pages of paperwork for that you may or may not get. I mean, that's the old model of social services and it just doesn't work. I love this. This is, you are an incredible leader. I mean, this is how, this is good leadership you're listening to everybody. (laughs) I mean, give people opportunities and then trust them and let them know you believe in them. I mean, it makes me wanna cry talking about it. And I mean, we can use that for our kids. You know, it's not just the people we work with that this sort of mindset can can be successful with. I want to talk then about what traits you think good leaders sh- should have. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think being a really well, being really clear with what your vision is, not being afraid to take risks, and and really trusting not just your own vision, but in people around you to execute. It doesn't mean it works every time. There will be times that you get burned, but being optimistic and you know really truly um, believing in the possibility that you can achieve 
the vision that you set forth, I think is, is important because people will, will watch you. I also think, you know, having, having confidence in your own ability to make decisions. I mean, people, you have to make decisions as a leader. I mean, it, and that can be really challenging sometimes and you can make bad decisions, but people need to know that you're going to make a decision in order for them to, to feel comfortable in terms of following your vision. And yep. um, that that puts a lot of pressure, but I think it's also just something that you have to be willing to do. And, and with risk-taking, you will make mistakes. I make yep. mistakes all the time, and it's like, how do you then recover from mistakes that I think can be more, even more inspiring than, you know, never, never taking a risk in the first place. You are, um, a strong woman in a leadership role in a dirty, heavy business, you know, in the world of philanthropy and surrounded by people who are struggling and yet somehow you stay positive. How do you do that? What inspires you to do that? I think it's really my core belief in people. And again, this this philosophy of, you know, we are going to provide opportunities for people. And it might not work the first time or the second time or the third time, but we are going to provide, you know, we are going to believe in human beings. And I really believe that um, that's what I wake up in the morning excited about. So I don't really know where that comes from. Um, But if I didn't feel that way, I don't think I could do my job. Yeah, you have to. You have to. Because the minute that wavers, you're done. Yeah. Um, So you have created... Okay, so everybody, you are going to go over to NicoleDeBoom.com and you're going to check out the links to the Bridge House and check out what Isabel is doing to change people's lives. This is... uh, based in Boulder, but this model of ready to work, which is an entrepreneurial model that's built into this philanthropic, um, you know, uh, uh, basically foundation, Isabel's creating businesses that are creating jobs and skills training for people re-entering workforce, in your case, homeless people. And it's incredible. And um, the Community Table Kitchen, if you come to a skirt sports event in the future, we're going to hit you guys up for some more uh, donations. <laughs> or actually, Cookies. we'll buy them. We will buy them Appetizers. because we need to be buying from you. Um, absolutely. You, yeah. So, you know, here's a here's a big kind of question as we're starting to wrap up our, our 5K here in our podcast. Um, when When someone loses everything, so people are going to relate to this in a lot of ways, right? They're going to feel like they lost everything maybe when they their marriage breaks up or they lose a job. Maybe they're not homeless yet, but this concept of feeling like you don't have anything. What is your advice to them? What's the first step someone should take so that they don't let it all unravel? One of the hardest things to do, particularly if someone has been independent, has been brought up in a a world where independence is king you've got to ask for help and not ask for help and i need this i need that but ask for help in a way of like i'm gonna i'm gonna make it happen but you need some help we all need help and i think unfortunately there's a certain amount of denial that can go on earlier when someone's just trying to kind of hide 
maybe what's going on with their addiction or you know with their financial situation there's a lot of pride everything we hear as a society is that you need to be able to do it yourself well we can't do it ourselves you know and the difference between someone who ends up on the streets and someone who's kind of able to seemingly be doing fine is relationships and resources so you know if you have solid you know family relationships or um friendships well yeah you're going to be a little bit better off than someone who maybe grew up in a really abusive household and is not connected to their family or someone who you know has had a, a breakup which you know we all can experience in different ways so using those early is mm-hmm. is what i what i recommend but if you don't have them in your own network well then there's so many people out there who want to help whether that's through the nonprofit sector you know more and more businesses are doing cool things like skirt sports and running start you know to to do to to reach out to people in need yep. and we all should feel empowered to take advantage of that in our own lives well let's Actually, I love this. I love, there's so many good messages in here and we have to hit on running start because Isabel, you and I were hiking Sanitas, oh, seven, eight years ago. It was a while back and we were talking about how there are no real hands-on resources to help women gain entry into running who have barriers, right? Mm And, uh, and we just sort of like came upon this idea of, well, what if we could create that? And what if we could give people the resources they're mm-hmm. missing? And I will never forget that you read an article in, it was like New York Times or something. And it, it was about accountability. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think it was about weight loss because mm-hmm. most of those articles are. And it said something like uh, there was some just massive percentage of success in a weight loss program mm-hmm. if somebody called you every day to check in on you. Yep. And we we um, decided to take that and use that mm-hmm. in our model for mm-hmm. helping women. So Running Start ended up being a beginner mentor program. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of important because yeah. I really think this is also a little bit of what you do in your life. Yeah. You know, your first mentor was a homeless person who is also mentoring other homeless people. I mean, it's just all around us. Well, as human beings, you know, we're social by nature. And yeah, that interpersonal connection is so important that to thrive in both ways. We all want to give, you know, as part of our core, you want to, you know, you want to be giving what you have, (laughs) you know, emotionally and, you know, intellectually. But we all need to take in order to continue to, to thrive. And Running Start is that metaphor, right? I mean, it's it's about, and at the time, I know for me, I had found this whole new world of it felt so good to be a runner. You know, I was feeling so great as a new mom because I had that time for myself. I was feeling so healthy and in shape. And, and it really felt to me, and, you know, obviously you as an athlete have felt that way your entire life but like I wanted to figure out a way how could we give that to people who are struggling because running is so much more than running right Right. it's 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 sort of a complete physical manifestation of empowerment right to be able to complete a race or you know that kind of thing so 
So yes, I mean, that concept of bringing people together around a common goal and, and leveraging someone who has expertise with someone who needs support in a meaningful way is, is a metaphor for life. You know, I think we do it in our friendships. We do it in our well, we business should relationships. Do it, and we should do it in our marriages. But we, we often lose some of that with the right. tug and pull of real life, you know? Right. Oh, my gosh. This is so cool. So we have uh, hit our, our timeline. But I want to keep talking. But we, will, we won't. We are going to actually wrap it up here because you got to get off to work and help people change their lives. Yes. So we're going to end on our one final question. So if you could give people one piece of advice, one final nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Don't be afraid to make a decision. Ooh. And I that's say a good that one. because I think it's so easy to let other people make decisions for you by asking for a ton of advice and a ton of analysis. And a little bit of advice is good, but you have to own your decisions. And you have to make them. And I really do think that what differentiates people who are happy in their lives and are successful in whatever it is that they're doing, it's because they've been able to make decisions. And even if they haven't necessarily been the right decision, they've been able to own it and build upon that with, you know, with their actions. And so I, I think that that is hard, but truly, to me, that is the piece of advice I would give. I love it. Thank you for all the incredible work you are doing in this world. And I'm so grateful that we've had the opportunity to become friends and do work together, too. And we're going to keep it up. And you know what? We're going to make a decision right now to end this interview and go start <laughs> the rest of our day. Well, thank you, Nicole. You are an inspiration, and you've been an inspiration to me. Adios. Ah, wow. I didn't want Isabel to leave. I really love what she is doing out there in the world. She is working with a polarized fringe group of people who most people wish didn't exist because of how they make them feel, not realizing that they could become a member of that polarized group much more easily than they realize. And I love her final nugget. It's something that I can relate to as a woman in business, as an athlete, and as a mom. Don't be afraid to make a decision. For more on Isabel, go to NicoleDeBoom.com where you'll find links, photos, and more. We may have to put another nugget in there. By the way, if you watched our, uh, our teaser on the new Run This World podcast Facebook group, I want to share one more thing people really most people don't know about Isabel. She was a skirt sports catalog cover model for two years. And we've still got those old catalogs. So if you come to skirt sports to our store on the corner of 28th and Pearl Street, you'll see those covers framed and hanging in our bathroom. <laughs> but um, on a side note, it is the most inspirational bathroom you'll ever visit. So it's actually an honor to be hanging in the bathroom. So on that note let's see here you know what actually I do have an update for you before we go I created a new run this world Facebook group which I just mentioned where I will be posting exclusively about the podcast and we plan to have live Facebook live guests 
So after the podcast air, I'll post about the podcast and you can add questions or things we didn't cover, things that come to mind. And then at some point afterward, I will have the guest pop on Facebook Live, answer those questions. And if you happen to be on at the same time, you can you can do some live Q&A as well. I think it'll be fun, more interactive, and you'll just get, you'll get, you know, you can be more connected. That's what this is all about. So you can also request guests, um, easily reach me on the Facebook group. So just another really cool way to check out everything in one place and interact with it. All right, so now really on that note, it's time for me to make a decision. Let's get out there and run this world. Let's have a great workout and I'll see you next week.